Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here, and this is episode 77 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia to protect and serve your community? And today, we're talking about the crime of assault. When is it a crime to threaten somebody else, whether orally in writing, by words, or by writing? And it turns out that this is actually a pretty complicated issue in Virginia. And it's an issue that goes back at least 100 years in Virginia. And the courts still struggle with it today. In fact, really, it wasn't until the last 20 years in Virginia that the courts really explained how we're supposed to figure out when a threat is a crime and when a threat is just words alone. Because here's the funny thing about Virginia law. If I walk up to somebody on the street and I say, you know what? Someday soon, I'm going to break your nose. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to break your nose. And that's not a crime. And under certain circumstances, if I'm just driving down the street and I stop my car and I look at somebody on the street and I say, hey, buddy, I'm going to punch you in the face and break your nose. And then I drive away. That's also not a crime. But... Time and time again in Virginia law, we will see instances, and I want to talk today about how something that might normally not be a threat might have something additional that turns it into a threat. For example, instead of saying, I'm going to punch you in the nose out loud, I text it to the person. Or instead of saying, I'm going to punch you in the nose, I say, I'm going to burn your house down or something like that. So I want to talk today about when is a threat a crime and when is a threat not a crime. Uh, when I was a prosecutor, I can't tell you how many cases I would get uh, that would come in and people would be asking, police officers, citizens would be asking, is this a crime or not? Uh, and, you know, assaults were a big one. Uh, was this threat that was given, is that a criminal threat or is it just a regular civil threat? So hopefully at the end of today's episode, you'll have some different ideas about places to look when you have those kinds of cases show up. The, the case that made me think about this issue was a recent case from the Virginia Court of Appeals. And it's a case from May called Harvey versus Commonwealth. It's a case out of Norfolk. And what happened in this case was uh, there was a, an ongoing issue in the neighborhood with people parking on the street and people and residents, you know, struggling, fighting over parking spaces and so on. And Lots of times when people parked on the street, they would block access to the trash truck for trash cans. The trash truck would come by. It wouldn't see the trash cans. And so trash wouldn't get picked up. And this is a big issue. So one day, uh, this Ms. Harvey is parking her car in front of a house. And the homeowner comes out and says, hey, you can't park here. If you park here like this, you'll block my trash cans and my trash won't get picked up. And so the homeowner tries to shoo the defendant away, shoo Harvey away. And Harvey, while inside her car, says, you live here, you'll die here. I'll burn this bitch down. At that point, the defendant drives away and the homeowner is angry and tracks the defendant down a few blocks away, figures out where the defendant parks, calls the police, and uh, they argue, the police show up. The trial court convicts the defendant of assault. The defendant appeals, and the defendant is again convicted of assault in circuit court. 
And so the defendant appeals to the Court of Appeals. And the Court of Appeals reverses the conviction. They hold that here, and the explanation from the court is, without any proof of any overt act, the assault conviction was based on the defendant's words alone. And so let's unpack this. I want to unpack this case and figure out what the court is talking about. And at the end of the episode, I want to ask you, could we have charged this case differently and come up with a different result? So let's talk about this idea of assault being words alone and when is assault a crime, when is assault not a crime. Um, This goes all the way back to uh, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Uh, There were cases, there was a case called Berkeley versus Commonwealth that really was one of the first cases from the Virginia Supreme Court that dealt with the idea of um, assault as more than just an attempted battery. Uh, up until that point, a lot of, there was a lot of agreement that somebody, let's say I walk up to you and I punch you in the face. We all know that's a battery. Now, a lot of times we call a battery an assault. We call assault and battery assault just as a shorthand. But in law, there's really two terms. There's battery and there's assault. So if I walk up and I punch you in the face, that's a battery. If I walk up and I swing at you, but you dodge out of the way and I miss you, under the common law, that was considered to be an assault. That was an attempted battery. An attempted battery was oftentimes called an assault. But in Berkeley versus Commonwealth, uh, the court sort of has to address the situation where Berkeley takes out a gun, points it at the other person, and threatens them with this gun. And the court says, well, that's not really an attempted battery in the sense that he doesn't actually pull the trigger and shoot at the person trying to hit them and just miss them. It's just a threat that appear with a, with a gun that appears to be loaded. And the court says, well, that is also a form of assault. It still has the same effect of taking a swing at somebody and missing, which is it puts that person in fear, a well-founded apprehension of harm. So why should it be different whether the person misses on purpose or doesn't hurt the person on purpose or whether they miss by accident? So the court in there starts to develop this other idea of assault. And in Burgess versus Commonwealth in 1923, we have one of the first instances where somebody takes a shot at a police officer or tries to attack a police officer. And you see, we'll see more recently that these cases with attacks on police officers cause the court often to rethink or refine his definition of assault. So in Burgess, the defendant shoots at a police officer, clearly not actually intending to hit the officer, but intending to create the fear in the mind of the officer that he's being, he may be shot or he may be shot at. So the defendant shoots in the direction of the police officer to cause the officer to be in fear. And the court again says, yeah, this is still an assault. You're putting the victim in a well-founded fear or apprehension of harm. And so the court adopts this idea that for someone to be assaulted, there doesn't have to be some need for the person to be in actual peril, like when I swing at you and I miss because you dodge out of the way. Only need You only need a well-founded apprehension of fear. Because again, the suffering of the victim is the same. The breach of the public peace is the same. It doesn't matter whether you miss on purpose or whether you miss by accident. The effect on the victim is the same. So why shouldn't that still be assault is basically what the court's explaining here. 
that it, either one is assault, right? Swing and a miss because of my of you being very good at dodging, that's an assault. Uh, what if I just swung at you and missed on purpose, right? Isn't that the same uh, effect? So what we end up with then is this more modern idea of assault. And this first comes up in a case called Carter versus Commonwealth in the, 20th, in the 21st century, when a police officer in Charlottesville walks up to a car that he stopped for a traffic violation. And he notices that the passenger in the car has his right hand concealed down by his leg. The officer is concerned, it's nighttime, there's a lot of uh, guns and drugs in the area. And as he's watching the passenger out of the corner of his eye while talking to the driver, he suddenly sees the passenger pull up his hand very quickly across his body in a fist and point it towards the officer. And the officer sees what he believes to be a gun. And as the officer steps back and grabs his firearm and draws out his firearm, the passenger, before the officer can draw his gun, points his, turns out to be fingers at the, at the officer and says, pow. And then at that point, as the officer is pulling out his gun, pointing it at the people in the car, he realizes that what he's looking at is the passenger's finger. The officer was genuinely, you know, genuinely believed he was facing a gun, genuinely believed he was looking at a gun. And he believed ultimately that, um, you know, that he was about to be shot or that he was being shot. The trial court in that case convicted the defendant of assault on police officer. And the defendant appealed saying, hey, I didn't assault anybody. I didn't have a real gun. But the court here in this case, the Virginia Supreme Court, looks at the evidence and says, well, again, what was your intention? It was to cause a fear in the mind of the officer that he was about to be shot. And what difference does it make whether you had a real gun or a fake gun if you created that fear on purpose, which clearly he did. And so the court affirms the conviction for assault. So what we can see is that you can be convicted of assault even if you don't have the present ability to cause someone harm. Even if it's not a swing and a miss, it's an attempted battery. It's not an attempted battery, it's just a threat. If I have the intention of causing the other person to have fear. But, you know, of course there's more to it, right? Because we saw from the Harvey versus Commonwealth case, which is the case in Norfolk where they're having the dispute about the trash cans, where the uh, defendant in that case said, you live here, you die here, I'm going to burn this bitch down. <clears throat> the court says, well, you, it's got to be the threat plus some kind of, in the eyes of the court, some kind of overt act. So let's dive into this a little bit more. The idea then of battery is, is a little, excuse me, of assault, excuse me, is a little, um, is sort of two-sided, right? So you can have the attempted assault, it's attempt with force and violence to cause some hurt to somebody else right, coupled with a present ability to do that. And that's your attempted battery, right? So common law, that's an attempt, and it's we called it an assault. But then we also have this more modern idea of assault that has developed over time. And this is placing another person in reasonable apprehension of harm. But the reasonable apprehension of harm, right, idea, does that require somebody to also have um, the ability, the present ability to cause that harm, right? Because that's the common law idea, is there has to be some kind of present ability to cause the harm coupled with the actual threat, right? 
And so what the court has drawn a firm line on when it comes to assault is that words alone can never be sufficient to cause an assault. And as the court was developing over the 20th century, this idea of assault, the court put this uh, doctrine in place in the early 1930s and has reaffirmed it since then, that simply my words cannot be an assault. There has to be uh, some kind of act that's of sufficient gravity to create somebody else, create a reasonable fear of assault uh, or overt act or causing a reasonable fear of uh, bodily harm or apprehension of bodily harm. So uh, around the same time as the Carter case, the case where the guy was with his finger gun, there was a case called Bennett versus Commonwealth, where officers go to a defendant's house to investigate a criminal complaint. When they get there, uh, the defendant starts screaming and shouting profanities and says, if you don't leave, it's going to be a effing bloodbath. And he is gesturing with his hands while he's speaking, but he doesn't physically threaten the officers. So at that point, do we have just words alone? Well, in the eyes of the court here, they look more at his actions and they say, well, what does he do? He, he doesn't really get close to the officers. He doesn't um, have any kind of weapon. He doesn't pretend to have any kind of weapon. He just makes this overt threat that if they come into his house, it's going to be an effing bloodbath. Um, so he's waving his hands around, but his gestures aren't physically threatening. They're just him sort of waving and pointing and so on. So in Bennett, although the trial court had convicted the defendant, when it goes to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals says in that case, there's no overt act or attempt to physically harm the officer. So there's no attempted battery. But in addition, although you have the threats, you don't have any overt act in addition to the words alone. Uh, unlike the, uh, the the gentleman, the passenger of the car with in Carter in Charlottesville with the finger gun, where he takes his finger and, and simulates to have a gun and moves his arm like he simulates he's have a gun, obviously with the intention of creating the minds of the officer that he actually has a gun. Uh, we don't have that in Bennett. We just have a guy who's yelling and screaming and making just random threats. It's going to be a bloodbath. So those threats alone in Bennett are not enough to constitute an assault, and the court reverses the conviction. So we do have instances in Virginia of defendants convicted of assault on law enforcement officer who make similar kinds of threats and epithets towards officers. And for example, uh, there is a, a case in 2018 called Moore versus Commonwealth. There, the officers are arresting the defendant for public intoxication. Uh, in that case, the defendant was belligerent, violent, cursing the officers, directed racial slurs at the officers, was kicking the vehicle, threatened to punch one of the officers, actually ended up headbutting a door in the officer in the in the police department, um, spat on one of the deputies. The court looked at that in detail, and of course, obviously, there's battery in there, and there's spitting on people and all that kind of stuff, and that's obviously going to be battery. But the court looked here and the other actions of the defendant and said, well, remember, we have two different kinds of assault. We have an attempted battery, but we also have the overt, right, which is, and, and so an attempted battery is an overt act intended to inflict bodily harm, which has the present ability to in, in, inflict such harm, right? And so that's the first kind of the traditional kind of assault, right? An overt act intended to inflict bodily harm that has the present ability to inflict such harm. 
But then you also have this newer kind of battery. And by newer, I realize it's you know still 150 years old, but that's still new in the, in the world of the common law, uh, where you have a person who engages in an overt act intended to place the victim in fear or apprehension of bodily harm and actually creates the fear or apprehension in the victim. So in both cases, you have the overt act, right? There has to be some overt act. One is intended to cause harm and has the ability to cause harm. The other is intended only to cause fear and, and creates reasonable fear, right? So the attempted battery was an attempt to hurt somebody. It just failed. The other one's intended simply to create fear. And it doesn't actually have to create fear um, if you have the actual act taking place, right? So spitting at an officer and missing would be an assault, whether the officer was afraid or not. Uh, if the person's spit, you know, was intended to hit the officer and the officer was able to step back out of the way. Now, in that case, obviously, they affirm the conviction because there's a lot of different assaults in that case. But if you look at Blankenship versus Commonwealth, uh, Blankenship is a case where the defendant walked up to a victim at, a, at the victim's home about 20 feet away and said, I'm going to kill you, right? Which sounds a lot like the threat to the police officers that we just talked about um, in the uh, Bennett case in 2001, where he's standing there saying, it's going to be a fucking bloodbath. Here, he says, I'm going to kill you, but he keeps moving up towards the victim, walking up towards the victim, uh, getting up close towards the victim, then stepping away, then walking towards the victim again, like, I'm going to kill you. Officers show up. Uh, officers show up, uniform badge of authority, and he tells them, F off, calls them MFers, gets angry, gets more arrest, uh, says, you're not going to touch me, moves towards the officers, and as he's moving towards the officers, he has his fists clenched. So ask yourself, is that more than Bennett, right? Uh, the officers here are concerned that they're going to get into it, that they're going to have to fight this guy, and indeed, the defendant, while he clates his fist, takes a fighting stance like he's going to fight the officers. Um, at that point, they order him onto the ground. Uh, instead of fighting him, they spray him with pepper spray, and then they release a, a dog. Uh, and then the, he punches the dog and, and ends up hitting the dog repeatedly. Um, and um, ultimately, he's convicted. And the court, in that case, the Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction, both of the assault of the civilian victim and of the law enforcement officers, right? Again, the overt act intended to put the victim in fear, going to the victim's house and saying, I'm going to kill you, and then walking up to the victim, walking up to his house as the victim tries to get away, right? That's intended to put the victim in fear. Walking up to the officers and saying, don't effing touch me, I'm going to F you up, and putting his hands in fists, again, puts the officers, is intended to put the officers in reasonable fear. And so although words alone are not enough to cause an assault, here, moving towards the officers in a fighting stance or moving towards the victim at the victim's home while threatening to kill him are sufficient to demonstrate that an, an assault under that assault, that fear, that kind of a fear assault we talk about. So we have two recent cases, I think, that really well establish what a assault by fear looks like. Now, the other thing I want you to think about, too, is, um, uh, is other kinds of other, other statutes that you could use in this kind of situation. What if the threat were a threat that was uh, over the airways, over a phone, like a person makes that threat, but they don't make it in person, they make it over the phone. 
Well, a threat like that can violate 18.2.427, which is the phone threats code section. It is a criminal offense in Virginia under 427 for to use obscene, vulgar, profane, lewd, lascivious, or indecent language or make a suggestion or proposal of indecent, obscene nature or threaten illegal or moral act with the intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass a person over the phone. And there's a similar statute for computers, which nowadays we use for text messages and emails and so on. That's 18.2.152.1.1. If any person with the intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass a person uses a computer or computer network to communicate obscene, vulgar, profane, lewd, or lascivious or indecent language, or make any suggestion or proposal of an obscene nature or threaten an illegal or immoral act, again, that's a class one misdemeanor. Now, I'll tell you that as a general matter, if you're trying to prosecute somebody for obscenity, you're going to run into a First Amendment problem. It's extremely difficult to, prove, to prosecute obscenity under uh, the United States Constitution of the First Amendment. But we have a long series of cases that talk about threats over the phone or threats over text messages and making uh, threatening somebody with an illegal or immoral act using threats to with an intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass, or um, make an obscene suggestion or proposal with the intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass doesn't have First Amendment protection. So if I'm doing that with the intent to coerce, intimidate, or harass a person, if I'm threatening sexual abuse towards a victim, for example, um, that was in Revis versus Commonwealth, which is a 2012 case uh, where the defendant said, um, some pretty horrible things. B, I'm going to F you in the worst effing way, and what's going to happen is not going to be pretty, right? That's not obscene, but in the eyes of the court, it's meant it's a it's a it's a threat to uh, intent, intended to coerce, intimidate, or harass. Um, Wits versus Commonwealth. I'm I have some fireworks for you, and you're going to fall. Were statements over the phone that got somebody convicted under this code section, and similarly again over text messages. Uh, you can do this, the same actions over a text or over an email and so on. Even if those statements were made in person, they might not be violations of the code. If there are statements made in writing in a text or over the phone, that, that threat might be a, uh, a criminal offense. And remember also, if you have repeated threats to somebody, Right, you would have a violation of the stalking code section, right, which is 18.260.3, and that um, is that covers a situation where the defendant directs his conduct towards a victim on at least two occasions, knowing or shooting or no, where when he knew or should have known that his conduct would cause fear, a reasonable fear of criminal sexual assault, death, or bodily injury to himself or to his family. So here, if you have repeated threats, even if the single threat wouldn't be a criminal offense, repeated threats uh, end up being stalking. So for example, I prosecuted a case once where somebody made a threat uh, to their neighbor, the baby was you know, crying all night, and they said, if you don't cut, shut that baby up, I'm gonna come over and shut that baby up for you. Well, that threat in and of itself, a single statement is not a criminal offense, but he made the threat repeatedly and so that threat turned into a stalking offense under 18.260.3. And that's a misdemeanor offense, but a repeated offense can be a felony. Threats in writing, in addition, can bring about greater punishment, especially certain kinds of threats. A threat to kill somebody, 
or a threat to do bodily injury to that person or to a person's family. Um, if they are, and they put that person in reasonable apprehension of death or bodily injury, that's a class six felony. So if I'm in writing, including a text message or an email, I threaten to kill someone or threaten to do them bodily injury of any kind, that's a 18.2-60 violation. If I threaten somebody in writing on the premises of a school or on a school bus or school-sponsored event, uh, regardless of whether that person actually gets the message at all and, and there's any fear at all, that's a class six felony. And if I do a threat to kill or uh, do serious bodily injuries to somebody with the intention of causing basically terrorism, a terroristic threat, that's also a class five felony. So making threats in writing can violate 18.2-60. Keep in mind too, that even if I orally make a threat to kill or do bodily injury, if it's to somebody who's an employee of a school or on a school bus or a school-sponsored activity or to a healthcare provider um, or in an emergency room or in an ER or to somebody who's rendering emergency care, that's a class one misdemeanor. And so notice again, if I threaten, hey, I'm going to punch you in the nose, I'm driving down the street and I can yell at my car, hey, I'm going to punch you in the nose, it's not really a crime. But if I make a threat to do bodily injury, hey, I'm going to punch your nose or I'm going to break your nose to somebody in an ER, that's a class one misdemeanor. So keep in mind, or in a school, right? If I do that on a school property, hey, teacher, you know, I'm going to punch you in the nose, I'm going to break your nose, uh, that would be a class one misdemeanor, even if it's orally uh, and not in writing. While we talk about oral threats that can be uh, a violation of the law, it's also worth considering um, you know, the threats that are used to accomplish something, right? If I want to extort money from somebody, right, that would be extortion, uh, and that would be 18.2-59. If I make a threat of some kind to somebody to accuse them of a crime, threaten injury to their character, threaten them with deportation, uh, that would be extortion. If I'm threatening somebody with abduction, if I've threatened to kidnap somebody, that would be 18.2-49, threatening abduction. And of course, if I'm just threatening somebody to get money out of them, that's just robbery, right? So, you know, again, hey, if I walk up to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to punch you in the nose unless you give me money or give me your wallet or I'm going to punch you in the nose. That's that's just plain old robbery, 18.2-58. Uh, um, that used to carry up to life in the penitentiary. Uh, nowadays, if you commit robbery by using mere threat with no deadly weapon and no violence, it's just a class six felony. Uh, but it's still a felony offense to threaten to hurt someone if they don't give you uh, money. And so, um, again, we're coming back now to this, uh, to, our, to our original case. But as I do, I want to remind you that and to think about the place where this offense takes place. Uh, Clark versus Commonwealth was a 2010 case where the defendant was angry at a school bus driver. And at the time, we didn't have this, this crime, this enhanced punishment for threats on a school bus. But it's a case from Henrico where the defendant was angry at the school bus driver for ejecting her son from the bus. And so she walked up to the driver and said, I told you I'm going to get you, B. Uh, I don't care. I don't care where are you. If you're on school ground, if you're in school, or if you're at the grocery store, I'm going to F you up. Now that alone, right, that's just words. But let's take a look at the defendant's actions. What had the defendant done? Well, she'd driven her car up to the school bus and blocked in the school bus with her car. 
And then she comes back later in the day and threatens the driver again. And so the court says, well, here you have more than just words alone. She's blocking the vehicle, which, in, which intends to create reasonable fear that this assault's actually going to happen. And then she makes this statement, no matter where you are, I'm going to find you, I'm going to F you up. And then later on, finds her and tracks her down again. And so the court says under those facts, that is sufficiently, that's sufficient to prove an assault. And of course, nowadays, it doesn't matter that it's words alone because it's a threat of a school bus driver. But let's talk about the Harvey case again, which is the case we started with today, the Norfolk case. It's a threat. Well, what's the actual threat that she makes from the car? The threat is you live here, you'll die here. I'll burn this bitch down. Well, the last code section I want to talk about here is 18.2-83, which is threats to bomb or damage buildings or means of transportation. And it makes it a felony offense for any person who makes and communicates to another person by any means a threat to bomb, burn, destroy, or in any manner damage any building or other structure or any means of transportation. So that code section makes it a threat, whether orally or in writing, to burn or in any manner damage a building or a means of transportation. And indeed, I've had cases before where, you know, somebody's had a, you know, very serious threats. I'm going to come out here, I'm going to shoot, you know, I'm going to shoot you. And, I, you know, under the facts, we weren't able to prosecute it. And the person said, I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to shoot up your house. And I, I stopped the officer and I said, wait, hang on a second here. What exactly did he say? He said, I'm going to shoot you and shoot up the house. Well, hold on a second here. The threat to shoot up the house is an oral threat to, ban to, to damage a building. And that is a felony offense. And I remember the officer thinking, what kind of crazy world do we live in, right? Where that is what turns it into a felony. We have all these threats, this huge along your list of threats, but it was a threat against the building that ended up making it a criminal offense and indeed made it a, a felony offense. So the lesson from today is you really, you know, talk to your commonwealth attorney, get to know the code, let, get to know the criminal offenses, because oftentimes, while well, on the face of it, you might think what I have here is just words alone. Uh, what you may in fact find is, hey, there's another way to come at this, to actually hold this offender accountable and to keep my community safe. So I hope today was helpful. I hope today was interesting. Um, if you like what you hear, tell your friends. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. You can just listen to it on the web on SoundCloud with a web browser. We're on Stitcher. Uh, if you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>